Okay. Tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at chapters 16 through 19, but we're actually going to peek into chapter 15 just for a couple of moments tonight. Um, as we come to our study tonight, uh, I just want to kind of overview for you where we are using this particular uh, slide that we have been using. So uh, we are actually uh, right here, beginning part two, or the second half of Exodus, where the people of Israel come to Mount Sinai. They will stay there actually about 11 months, and it will be there that they will um, be able to uh, receive the law. And so this section here uh, is talking a little bit about after crossing the Sea of Reeds, uh, after they sing a worship song back in chapter 15, they come to a place named Elam. And you see that in chapter 15 down in verse 27. Uh, this place called Elam, you can see down here, is a an area uh, pretty close to Mara, and Mara is a place that the water is bitter, and uh, God will have to intervene. We'll see that in a second. And uh, then from Elam, they're going to travel down to, as we've said before, the traditional site in Mount Sinai is down here in the Sinai Peninsula. If, uh, once again, the location of the giving of the law is more over into Midian, then they would cross the sea over here. Um, so that'll be, uh, I'll, I'll kind of recap that one more time uh, toward the end of our study tonight. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at uh, this section where they come to a place where they need God's intervention. And there's some themes in this section about their thirst and their hunger while they're in the wilderness. There's also a paragraph talking about a, a, an enemy attack uh, against the Amalekites. But overall in this section, there's a lot of murmuring and a lot of complaining that is going on. And uh, so after these months of travel, uh, what we'll find is that they will be situ situated uh, at Mount Sinai for 11 months, and that's where they're going to receive the law. That's where they're going to receive the instructions for the building of the tabernacle, this portable temple that will go with them in their travels toward the promised land. So that's kind of an overview and a summary of what's in this section. So let's dissect it a little bit. In this section, there is a lot about food and water. Uh, throughout each chapter. And as they leave Egypt, the one thing that is their problem uh, with a huge amount of people is what are they going to eat and drink while they're out in this desert section? Now, it's kind of fascinating to me here that um, the text tells us that they take along silver and gold and some other resources that they'll use in the building of the tabernacle, but I guess no one had the foresight to think about what are we going to eat when we're traveling. So as they come into this wilderness section, one of the things that you're going to find is God's going to supply in a variety of different ways. And if you look at verse 22 of chapter 15, it says, 
Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. Now, to fast forward a little bit, the water's not only the problem, but there's going to be the problem of food as well. And then when you get into chapter 16, God is going to provide manna, which is such a strange thing that the word uh, in Hebrew, man means question, and ha, man ha, or who, uh, is the question is, what is it, basically? So that's kind of the translation of manna, what is this? So what we're going to find is a provision both that comes in the morning and comes at night when there's an introduction to uh, the provision of, uh, of uh, quail. So all of this is a part of this section uh, that we're going to look at here in a couple of seconds. What's interesting is the dynamic of the manna from heaven is that it will be there for a while and then it will disappear. And there's a provision of uh, new manna in the morning. Now, what's interesting is some cross-references. Uh, in Psalm 78, verse 24, uh, the psalmist calls this grain from heaven. And uh, so there is some semblance, I guess, to bread here. Sometimes it will be referred to as bread from heaven, but it is not a typical thing that they would have eaten that and it's uh, thus designated with this idea of what is it, as they give it that name. Some of the other wisdom writers in the Apocrypha, Second Esdras and Wisdom, uh, referred to it as uh, angel's bread. And that's an interesting title that is given there. And then what we find about the quail is interesting as well. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 31 uh, as they, as the writer looks back on this particular episode, we'll talk about um, the quantity of quail that was provided. And uh, in Numbers chapter 11, I'll just read this because I think this is fascinating here. In ch Numbers chapter 11, it goes uh, down to verse uh, 31. It says, now a wind went out from the Lord and drove quail in from the sea. It brought them down all around the camp to about three feet above the ground, as far as a day's walk in any direction. That's a good distance. All that day and night and all the next day, the people went out and gathered quail. No one gathered less than 10 homers. And if you have a footnote here, that's about 60 bushels of uh, quail. And then it says they spread them out around the camp. And that while the meat was still between their teeth and before it could be consumed, the anger of the Lord burned against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. So God's providing and yet punishing at the same time. So the question comes up, what's going on here as the writer looks back? And I think the Exodus text tells us what's going on here. In this short span of Exodus, what we're going to find is that they they come up against bitter water, number one. Number two, uh, they come up against a shortage of food. 
And number three, they look back with fondness upon Egypt, where it seems as though they left a resort of some sort uh, because they had plenty to eat and so forth. So what's happening here is a general attitude. And I think what that kind of shows us is why God's anger, uh, as Numbers 11 shows us, is burning against them because he's providing all these things, and yet it's still not enough. So come back to chapter 15 and verse 23 and following. Uh, it says, when they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it's bitter. And that is why the place is called Marah. And, that, and the word Marah basically means bitterness. Now, the, uh, the resolution to this problem, after they ask the question, what are we to drink, is quite fascinating here. It says in verse 25 that Moses cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There the Lord made a decree and a law for them and there he tested them. So a couple of times in this section, uh, it says that they are being tested, that uh, this is a way of kind of sorting through their particular uh, problems, their hangups, and their uh, heartaches, and all the things that they go through. And God is testing them to see if they can develop the faith to continue to make the journey. So it says here in verse 26, he said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians for I am the Lord who heals you. So what happens here is fascinating. Um, this piece of wood transforms undrinkable water into drinkable water. And the first test is whether they are going to trust God to be their healer. You see this when it says here in verse 26, he says, for I am the Lord who heals you. That seems to be the lesson of the test that's going on here. Now, they reach an area called Elam, where there is 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they are camped there near the water. So it does come to a place where um, it almost sounds almost like a, a mirage, if you will, that they reach this place that is a paradise of sorts. So the wood makes the difference. And the wood here might be a reflection of what we're going to see in a couple of moments when Moses needs to use his staff to strike the rock to provide water when there is none. So there's this wood and the staff themes that are going on here as well. And of course, the staff goes all the way back to the plagues uh, for what we uh, for the uh, plagues against the Egyptians, many of the many of them uh, were uh, initiated through the staff of Moses. So uh, here, what we see taking place is their first test, and it's found in their food and their water provision. Have any thoughts or questions? Now, the other thing I want you to notice right here, the, the water 
occurs several times. In fact, it occurs three times in this section. The first one is here in chapter 15 in the waters of uh, Mara, but a second one begins in, uh, it's interesting, in verse 27, they are camped near the water, but when you get into chapter 16, uh, you begin to see that they have a water problem. So take a look at chapter 16. It says, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. And in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses. The Israelites said to them, if only... Uh, we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us in the de desert to starve this entire assembly. So what we see taking place here is they begin to complain, even though they're in an idyllic setting. That's what's at the end of chapter 15. There's palm trees for shade. There's springs, 12 of them and they are camped out near water. But what will take place is they begin to complain about the food side of it. And when we find that uh, water, it's interesting the way God's gonna provide the food. Sit up and take notice at verse four. Then the Lord says, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. That's interesting because it's, we're going to find here in a moment that it's actually like dew on the ground in the morning. But here, the terminology is actually using a water image. I will rain down. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And again, you see the testing here. Um, it says here in verse four, in this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Now, the instructions are is, is yet to come, but God is promising to rain down uh, this bread from heaven. So that's kind of a, uh, another theme of water in terms of image. And then, excuse me, the third is in chapter 17, where there's water from the rock. So it says in chapter 17, verse 1, the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink. So something is going on in the text here. The water idea is mentioned several times. And what we find is, I think it's tied back to the end of chapter 15. How is the Lord going to heal them? Uh, just not only physically by the provision of drink and uh, food, but also emotionally as well. Can you imagine the amount of baggage these people must have been carrying from all those years of being an enslaved people? So there is an emotional side, and it seems as though God's using the testing to bring about a trust and they're going to be able to see that God is going to provide for them as God brings these tests into their lives. Now, 
I think all of us have come to points in our life where <laughs> there's a situation, there's a circumstance um, that we come up against that tests us, that tests our faith, that tests how much we're going to trust God to be the healer in our own life as well. So in chapter 17, it's almost as if they failed the test because we've already seen in chapter 15 that God's going to provide drinkable water from bitter water. In chapter 16, he's providing quail that's raining down from heaven. And here in chapter 17, they failed the test because of their complaining. Uh, it says here, when there's no water, they quarreled, verse 2, with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? And why do you put the Lord to the, what? Test. There again, there's that image of test that comes out again in chapter 17. So we're seeing several <laughs> themes are, that are all being woven together in this section of Exodus. Now, the solution for this particular situation is um, where Moses is going to uh, use the staff again. So the first time he makes bitter waters uh, drinkable uh, by throwing a piece of wood into the water. This time, here's what Moses is told by uh, uh, the Lord. Uh, verse four says uh, Moses at the, is at the end of his emotional strength. He says, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered, walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. That's another name for Sinai. Um, and it says, so Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called this place Massah, which means testing. So the first place, Mara, means bitter. Massah means testing. So Moses did in the sight of the elders what God told him. And uh, he also names the place Meribah, which means quarreling. So bitter testing brings about quarreling just by the names there's almost a lesson there bitter testing brings about quarreling and what we find is um according to the, as if Moses is working from a script he does what um god tells him to do he strikes the water uh the rock and there's water that comes out of it for the people to drink and you can see that there in verse 6 so Again, this theme is um, coming together at a point at a place called Horeb, an alternative name for Sinai, and um, this seems to be kind of a, a memorial place uh, where not only will the law be given, but it's to evoke later generations the memory of what's going on there, that out of bitterness comes testing, and out of testing comes quarreling or arguing uh, with God. And when we think about that, uh, many people get bitter at God because they've gone through the test of something. And, um, and in those situations, um, are they going to trust God to be their healer? 
in the midst of those difficulties. So do you see how I kind of wove together all those themes a little bit that that's in this section? And it's kind of makes its way here in, um, in this section with this water theme. Incidentally, what's interesting is there's this same idea going back to the bitter waters where uh, Elijah um, uh, in 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, makes bitter water street uh, and the decontamination uh, also comes from a tree. So there's some similarities there that comes later in the history of the nation of Israel. Have I lost any of you uh, at all? Do you have any questions at all? I have a question, Larry. Yeah. Isn't this what caused Moses to have to die on the mountain? Or was it? It's a little bit later. Um, okay, not the same incident. The, the no, incident. I don't think so. Because he's going to come to the edge of the promised land. And that's not even in Exodus. Um, that right. would be in Numbers, the book of Numbers. What which recounts a lot of the same information. You're right. Yep. But they said it was because he struck the rock. Yeah, well, here God is telling them to strike the rock. Right. So um, Moses evidently says it worked one time. Why not okay. do it again? Um, and God says, no, I didn't want you to do that. Uh, that that comes later in numbers and in the okay. timeline of the story. So obviously one good question is, well, he struck it the first time. Why was it? Uh, not allowed, or why was it being disobedient the second time? But it's not the same incident. So, okay. um, so we, this one here is prompted by God. Uh, the other one isn't. So, and for your wood question, mm -hmm. I can't. I can't remember if it's hay or straw, but I've read a fact sheet that says. If your pond tends to have a lot of gunk and algae in it, mm -hmm. you throw a bale in and that'll help keep it clean. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Well, then maybe that's what, um, let me look this up again real quick here. Second uh, Kings 2.19, that, that, that prompts me to look at that cross-reference with Elijah. I just want to look at that again for a second. So in 2 Kings chapter 2, uh, there is the healing of the water down in verse 19. I'll read it. It says, the men of the city said to Elisha, look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw salt into it, saying, this is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will, I, uh, will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained wholesome to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. Um, one of the commentators I was reading was talking about a tree. I don't see it here, but 
I don't know if uh, I don't know if there's something going on in the text that is in a different translation, but I don't see it here. So anyways, but yeah, that's fascinating that something might be able to decontaminate um, yeah. a bad water. So it's barley straw. I just Bar barley barley yeah. a, a specific kind of straw. Yeah. Mm, interesting. Mm. Pretty cool. All right, let's go ahead. So there are a few things that causes some question marks. Um, so back in Exodus, <clears throat> what's interesting here is um, in this particular section, <clears throat> uh, go to chapter 16. I already took note in verse four that it talks about coming down from heaven. But look in verses 13 and 14, same um same chapter. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew is gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. So there's kind of a different picture going on in terms of how this food is being provided, this manna uh, one coming down from heaven and the other appearing, and I don't know enough about how dew works. It does, if anybody can give insight on that, but it seems to me that is that something that settles from heaven or is that something because of temperature, it comes from the moisture that's already on the ground? Does anybody know? It's like condensation on your glass. Okay, so do you think this is kind of a, a textual inconsistency here or just a, a, a way of saying the same thing differently? I think God just provided the manna. <laughs> no, but the way it came is what I'm saying. Is And the reason I'm saying that is because what we have been noticing is there have been different traditions that look back on the Exodus story, and it seems as though uh, they allow some inconsistency, inconsistency in the way they describe it. And here's another one that uh, scholars think might uh, be a place where there are two different traditions that are going on uh, describing how this manna from heaven uh, came down. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. The next one I think is is probably clearer and you can see it clearer. So if you come in chapter 16, uh, we'll come back to the manna in a second and what they are supposed to do with it. But in verse 26, here in chapter 16, the command is six days you are to gather it. But on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Now, the reason being is uh, they are going to collect twice as much on Saturday because of the Sabbath. Now, here's the question mark. How are they keeping the Sabbath when the Sabbath command has not yet been given? That doesn't come till chapter 20 when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. 
So the, the question becomes here, is this a later reflection of the editor just assuming the natural rhythm of uh, the Israeli life of keeping the Sabbath and superimposing it back on the text? Because what you have here is they're not there to keep the Sabbath, but it's not until chapter 20 that uh, it, it is actually commanded, uh, and it's part of the Ten Commandments that Moses brings down from the mountain, that you are to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. So scholars are suggesting maybe what this is doing is a later writer is assuming the natural rhythm that's in keeping the Sabbath. Six days you shall work, and on the seventh day you will rest, and kind of reflecting back on the text here in this commandment to collect for six days, but not on the seventh day, the bread from heaven. So again, these are just question marks that arise um, when you look at this type of thing, what you're seeing is perhaps different writers that are later are going to be looking back on the text and assuming that for the people that they are assembling this information for already have uh, agreed to keeping the law that was given to Moses. Another one is in verse 34. So take a look at verse 34 here, chapter 16. It says here, as the Lord commanded, Aaron put the manna in front of the testimony that it might be kept. Well, the, the testimony is part of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is not built yet. It's not even been revealed yet in terms of being a part of the tabernacle. So this um, idea of a covenant that God makes with his people and the law or the uh, the uh, covenant itself is in the ark uh, as a, a, in the center of the tabernacle is assumed on the text here. So why is that a big deal? It's not really a big deal, except you're seeing later people kind of reflecting back their current realities onto the text. It's probably not uh, real clear in terms of an Ark of the Covenant being built at the time that they are uh, eating the bread and the quail. So oh, as you can see at the bottom here, a lot of scholars again are saying different traditions are, uh, are crisscrossing themselves here because you have a later writer looking back on an earlier time and is talking about items that would not have even been in existence at this point with Moses. Does that make sense? What do you got there? Um, oh, Esty went, went Googling here about dew. Uh, so I'm doubling back here. Dew forms as temperature drops and objects cool down. If the object becomes cool enough, the air around the object will also cool. Colder air is less able to hold water vapor than warm air. This forces water vapor in the air around cooling objects to condense. So that's exactly what Shelley was just saying too. Yeah, so as you go up in the atmosphere, you reach the dew point and then the water is saturated. 
so that at night the earth stops giving off heat from the day mm -hmm. and then the temperature drops close to the ground so that's why it's when the sun comes up it, it heats the earth with short shorter wavelengths and uh -huh. the earth gives off long wavelengths and then so in the morning it would burn off so is the dew forming actually from the heavens coming down on earth or is it something I mean, that you could is... look at it you could look at it that way because it's water vapor uh -huh. essentially condensing at the at the earth's surface okay so there might not be an inconsistency there it's just interesting that there's a couple of different ways that it was being described as to how the the manna was provided mm -hmm. so any great insights any other comments questions okay so we come now to chapter 17 so i'm not covering every verse obviously here but in chapter 17 there is this strange paragraph that's inserted here in Exodus. So let me read it for a second, and uh, then we'll come back and comment on it. <clears throat> so after the water from the rock, uh, it says that the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, now Joshua is being introduced here to the text, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. There again is this staff. That theme keeps popping up in this section. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then uh, the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek uh, from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. So it's kind of interesting that the people have been complaining, uh, we've seen that a few times here, about not having enough to eat, and now all of a sudden their life is more complicated because of this attack from the Amalekites. Um, what's fascinating here is Joshua is uh, quickly inserted into the text, and of course Joshua will become Moses' um, successor. But what is fascinating here is um, how the victory takes place. Again, the staff, all the way back to the plagues, is again uh, something that is being used. So what's ha happening here is fascinating because we don't know who the Amalekites are. 
at this point. It just seems to be a random uh, group. But when you do a little bit of research about the Amalekites, um, even though they remain an obscure people through the whole Old Testament, and they're not a, a people group that's found in any extra biblical material, they seem to be a mig migratory type of people that are nomadic and travel. But the most dominant place that they occur in the Old Testament is during the days of the judges and the first two kings of Israel under the reigns of Saul and David. Now, if you look back into Genesis, what you find is uh, Amalek is the grandson of Esau. Remember Jacob and Esau, the story of the twin brothers. And um, what we find is that uh, this goes back quite a ways when you think about Jake, Jacob and Esau, and this group is not really prominent, and yet the text in the Old Testament where we find warring going on is during the days of the judges and during the days of Saul and David. So the question is, what's going on here? Why is this being inserted here? Is this simply a historical notation? Or is it something that's telling us, uh, that's helping us to uh, think about the, the, again, later writings of a group of people causing trouble for the Israelites that remembers an incident that occurred during the days of the Exodus. Now, an, a fascinating cross-reference is Numbers 2420. You remember the prophet Balaam. He, is, he calls the Amalekites uh, the first among the nations, which is fascinating that this is um, a group of people that evidently set out and uh, were identifiable even during the days of Balaam. So probably what's going on here is uh, there is, seems to be this ongoing riff that has been taking place with one group of people and another group of people. And when you get to Deuteronomy 25, 19, it says the very same thing that is uh, said here in verse 16, when it says, um, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And when you think about what David and Saul are up against, this reflects back all the way to Joshua. If you look at verse 14, it says, I will completely blot out of the memory, uh, I will blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Um, so this is something that is fascinating to me. It's the idea of them fighting these people. And of course, when Joshua enters the land, he's going to drive out these people that are enemies of Israel, including the Canaanites. But yet they're not completely blotted out of, uh, their memory is not completely blotted out because we see right here, they reoccur in Judges and Samuel. So interesting things, interesting dynamics that are going on here in the text. 
But nonetheless, there's something that happened with this group of people. And here what we find is Moses is again seen as the intercessor, and his staff seems to be the tool, uh, least folklorish, that when his staff was high, they were winning, and when oh. they he let them, uh, it was let down, they started losing. This again might be kind of a folklore, uh, thinking a bit about uh, Moses' significance to the victory here. But what we find is again the staff occurs here, and this staff has been a prominent feature all through the book. So the key question will be. How did they fight these people? Okay, so I'm still wondering about the weapons. So they leave Egypt and they take along some plunder. But back in Exodus 12 35, there's no mention of weapons at all that they take out from Egypt. So again, this causes biblical scholars to begin to think, well, how did they get their weaponry? It's probably not because the Egyptians handed them their chariots and their swords as they left. One explanation seems to be that the drowning of the Egyptian soldiers, also when they were washed up on shore of the Sea of Reeds, might have been a place where they were able to secure uh, some weaponry in their fight against the Amalekites. However, again, fast forwarding to 1 Samuel, when they come up against their enemy, the Philistines, the David and Goliath story, it's told in the text that uh, the whole nation of Israel only had one sword. Okay, so there's a lot of interesting different things that are going on because Goliath obviously is decked out with sword and shield and other pieces of iron because they are uh, a group of people that knew how to use that resource. And yet the Israelites weren't. So um, all of this begins to go, what is going on in this text here? They're going to fight the Amalekites. Where did they get their weapons? And then fast forward during the time that the Philistines are a threat, why don't they have weapons? So <laughs> again, that's a head scratcher. But again, when you look at this, all, all I'm trying to say is when you read the text closely and these questions come up, you begin to see that the Old Testament is not strict history. The purpose of this paragraph is not just about God providing a victory in battle, but a victory over the Amalekites, which is a part of the propaganda that's needed to continue to fight this group of people during the days of Saul and David. So what we might have here is part of a story that is used for a later purpose in First Samuel. Does that make sense to everybody? When people look back and they hear the story of Moses, they can they can continue to fight this ongoing enemy that goes all the way back to the rift between Jacob and Esau. So 
the thing I'm always fascinated about in the Old Testament is how long a memory these people have. They continue to remember incidents that go far beyond what we would normally remember. And they bring them into the present and they begin to act upon them in various ways, depending upon the story that had been passed down from generation to generation. So the purpose of this paragraph is pretty simple, I think. The text is applauding Moses um, for being the intercessor here that <laughs> the Amalekites. Any thoughts there? Okay, I'm also wondering not only about the weapons, but about the hand raising here. Actually, actually I have one yeah, comment about the weapons. Yeah. I know I'm coming in a little late, but um, don't you think there was hundreds of thousands of Israelites, right? Or Jewish people? Mm -hmm. Don't you think that some of them might have been trained in making weapons for Egypt, I mean, they weren't all just bricklayers, right? I mean, possibly? Possibly. Where did they get the raw materials? To yeah, work? the question is, where did they get the raw materials to do that? It seems so, so I mean, if you're, if, you're a trade, if you're trained in that, you know where to get the raw, raw materials. You know the combination to fire up to make steel. Yeah. What I can't what I can't reconcile, Brenda, is why in First Samuel they only have one sword to their name. They um, metal workers, I believe, is doesn't it even say that they yeah. had to take had to take the, even their plow instruments and things. That's right. Seems to be sharpened. That's right. Do you so, do you think that um, the the comment that they only had one sword was some kind of uh, just a phrase and not, it didn't really mean they only had one yeah. sword to fight with, but that they only had maybe their one sword was their God or. Well, what it might be is, um, is kind of like a political propaganda in the sense that Oh, we only had one sword, even though maybe they had more than that. But to show the the courage and the bravery and uh, all of this of a fighting people that overcame the odds that they overcame. So um, that might be part of it too. Is it's it's a way of showing how prominent this victory was because they shouldn't have they shouldn't have beat the philistines uh at all and and shelley is right many of their farming implements they took to the philistines to sharpen because they were metal workers so we're really trying to piece things together in in the text you know when we don't really have a full understanding of you know what the conditions on the ground were at, at that point but it's an you're right though it's an interesting observation that they could have learned and they should have learned other trades in egypt besides brick making i would think 
Yeah, because you, you would want your slaves to, to be able to do all kinds of jobs for you, whether right. they're helping you raise your children in your homes mm -hmm. or building um, your homes, not just your pyramids, but um, making your tools, be, maybe even being physicians. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very well possible. I think what, what we don't know... Yeah, go ahead. I think, I don't know if um, in the history of Egypt, uh, how, how they made their chariots and stuff like that. I just don't, I'm not well versed in that type of thing, but obviously um, they were able to make chariots uh, that they used in war and that type of thing too. So there are some other trades, obviously, uh, besides building pyramids that are phenomenal structures uh, that are around to this day. What were you going to say, bud? Uh, you know, the uh, I taught a course on this whole topic, you know, in case on uh, the, the metalworking was a real specialty. In other words, back then with the bronze, initially with the bronze age, you know, and then ultimately with, with metal, with iron. So it wasn't like everybody could do it. In fact, in many cases, the, leaders of the communities were the ones that, that it was that could do it you know they, in other words you were you were uh, and just it wasn't routinely done oftentimes the most you know if you had that expertise you became the leader of a of a community or or, or a, a town so it was and you became very wealthy so it was, it was not it was, it was pretty special the other thing is that the 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 uh the philistines were you know i don't know if you're familiar with, with what's happened during this period but there were many, many large civilizations that went that we just wiped out within a. I don't know if we've talked about this before. Within a relatively short period of time, um, a lot of, in fact, Egypt almost got wiped out too. But they were one of the few to survive. But if you go through history, there were very large civilizations. I can't remember the names of all of them. That were in kind of in that area of Turkey and in that area, that were just all wiped out in the in the, in the western in the uh, eastern Mediterranean. And um, that was really the, in part because of the sea. When there's a lot of, they question a lot of reasons for how that happened. All these civilizations, and they were taken over by what they call the sea people, who were ultimately the Philistines. And one of the one of the reasons that they that they explain was because the Philistines and, and these who were the sea people were the, were the first to develop steel, uh, you know, iron technology, and that the superiority of iron over bronze in terms of weaponry gave them an advantage and helped wipe out, you know wipe out major civilizations of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people at, at, at that point. So um, it's a really interesting story about it. About it. Um, I, I, I taught a whole, probably two weeks of the course were entirely on this, this topic. So. Uh, oh, that's great. That's great. I'd, I'd love to sat in that uh, course and, uh, and, and heard a lot of the research that you did that's really I'll send, you some, I'll send you some i don't have a video but i'll send you some of my powerpoint <laughs> slides okay that sounds good that sounds really good <laughs> other comments on this um i have one um i was wondering if when they left they they were given gold and silver and it says they plundered um the egyptians so they allowed them to leave with whatever they wanted so yeah it makes sense to me they would have taken weapons yeah that which is possible um 
I guess my, maybe, maybe my thought too is why Egypt so quickly ran after them with their army. If they but, but also maybe to show that even with just uh, Moses holding his staff up was enough power of, that God used to wipe out the people, you know, I mean, but it says yeah. by the Lord. We're not really told of how the battle went with boots on the ground. Right. <laughs> um, what we're told is that somehow Moses um, was this symbolic leader that they attributed his some type of power to the staff that he held his held up would they have won anyways or was this you know in the back and forth of battle i would imagine that there would be times sort of like in any ball game if you will there would be times you think you're winning and then all of a sudden you think you're losing um i don't know i don't know what to think of this other than moses is being propped up here in exodus as the prophet uh, that God sent to the people. And this might be a resume builder. Are you following what I'm saying? This fact is um, the reason we look to the teachings that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai is because he proved himself to be this war hero by standing and holding this this staff in his hand as a way of symbolizing um, God's protective hand over the Israelites as they battled the Amalekites. So there could be there could be some things going on here that has both a little bit of superstition to it that the reason we're winning is we're holding and propping Moses up. And the people look to Moses, and as long as he's standing there and he hasn't been killed by uh, an Amalekite, we're, uh, we're, uh, God is still with us. And because God is with us, we can win this battle. So I don't know. There's there's a number of ways that this becomes symbolic for the nation of Israel. And it's something, again, that they don't want to lose memory of, because as they are thinking about it later during the days of Saul and, and David, uh, these raids from the Amalekites, they look back on the promise that the Amalekites will be blotted out of the memory of the Israelites. So there's, I think there's some, some of that going on too here. Anyone else? Great comments tonight. So now here's an interesting thing. This is a long chapter considering, considering what it's talking about. So Moses evidently sent his wife and his children back to his father-in-law, Jethro. Remember, he watched the flock of Jethro um, in Midian. And it's interesting the way Jethro is introduced in chapter 18, verse 1. Now, Jethro, the priest of Midian. Ah, fascinating. This idea of priesthood uh, is attributed uh, to 
Jethro. He's a priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses. And he heard everything that God had done for Moses and for his people, Israel, and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Moses had sent away his wife Zipporah and his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. So she is, she's in hiding during much of this. And after uh, the exodus and after the defeat of the Amalekites, um, um, uh, Moses meets up with Jethro and Jethro brings Zipporah and his two sons. And um, it is there that Jethro is going to give Moses some advice. So it goes on down here after we're told a little bit about what's going on, about them meeting up. If you come down to verse five, the place that they met was uh, near the mountain of God. So that's another way of saying Sinai. Jethro had sent word to him, I'm, I, your father-in-law, I'm coming to you with your wife and your two sons. So Moses goes out to meet him, bows down, kisses him, so on and so forth. Uh, Moses tells the story of how God provided deliverance from the Egyptians. And then there's this interesting phrase in verse 13. Uh, the next day, after he had met with Jethro, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. And when his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit in as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? So all of a sudden, Here's this idea of complaining again in this section. And so the people were complaining against God, but they're complaining against each other too. So Moses is sitting day by day, listening to uh, the, the dispute that was going on, verse 16. Whenever they had a dispute, it was brought to me and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and laws. Again, fascinating. He informs them of God's decrees and laws. Well, up to this point, the only decrees and laws that you have would be the stories that have come before. He has not gone up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. All the laws in the book of Leviticus have not been given yet. So just fascinating phrases that are going on here. And he is kind of the Tim Misney of his day. He's sitting there and he is um, he's trying to win a dispute uh, between two people that are bickering. Uh, and we're not told what the disputes are about. What are all these disputes about that is keeping him busy from morning till night? Fascinating. They're in the wilderness. What's there to dispute about? I mean, are there land discrepancies or he's, um, you know, he's disregarding my need to feed my flock? Or I, I just find this fascinating. So what we find is Jethro gives him a suggestion to delegate, basically. And so he's to select capable people. They're to be the ones that resolve all this. And then he's going to 
be kind of like the Supreme Court. Look at verse 22. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. Eh, the simple cases they can decide themselves. What type of simple and what type of difficult cases are there when you're at the foot of a mountain out in the wilderness? I just find it fascinating that, that there's this dispute and bitterness and arguing that's going on among the people. Again, I, I think what you're finding here is a story, not so much about how to set up your company uh, and, and you have a CEO and you have managers below. I think it's a story about the attitude of the Israelites. They've been complaining against God several times over. They're complaining against each other. They have a heart issue. This heart issue is one of anger and bitterness. Again, it shows us a lot of the emotional baggage that they are carrying out of Egypt. Does that make sense? So um, Moses is exhausted, obviously. Um, and it's not just because he was keeping his arms up in the air during the battle with the Amalekites. He's just emotionally exhausted. And what we find is chapter 18 ends with Moses listening to his father-in-law. And he begins to bring some organization to a mass of people. And you'll notice verse 25, he chose capable, capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So they begin to get some organization to this, um, and they'll need it because later in Exodus, they're going to be given instructions about the tabernacle, and the people are going to camp around the tabernacle. They're going to need to be organized to get into their tribal units as they each have a specified place around the tabernacle as they travel. So uh, Moses says farewell to Jethro in verse 27. Jethro goes back to Midian. And then that leaves us at chapter 19, which I think this is a good place maybe to stop for the night because there's a lot in chapter 19 uh, as they get to Sinai. I knew, I knew I'd probably over-prepared for tonight just by the amount of sheets I sent out to you. But um, what we'll do is two weeks from tonight, we'll come back to chapter 19, and then we'll move into chapter 20, where there is the giving of the Ten Commandments. Does that sound like a plan to you? All right, so why don't we close here? Any closing comments or questions before we say goodnight? Why was it important to even mention that Moses sent his wife to her family. And when did that happen? Before he knew the plagues were going to come. And, and once they were out of Egypt, Egypt, it was safe for them to return. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, um, why even mention it? That It's like, you can go back to Ukraine now. It's safe, <laughs> you know. Let's get out before this happens. And then... Now it's safe to go back. It's not safe to go back. Mm -hmm. to your you know to your husband it might not be so much about Zipporah and the two boys as much as how 
how to get Jethro back into the Moses story because he becomes uh, prominent in oh, eventually good. getting mm-hmm. this early form of Israel organized. Okay. Okay. So it might not necessarily be all that much about re- about, about Zipporah and the two boys, as it is. How did Jethro come did back into again? the Moses story uh, to carry that uh, the the people forward? Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Sounds like Watergate with some missing tapes or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so true. So true. Yeah. All right. Any other thoughts that you have before we close up for the night? If not, we'll finish here and uh, we'll come back to chapter 19 two weeks from tonight. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Don't get blown away. Uh, we, we won't. <laughs> yeah, don't. All right. Take care. The ocean. Bye. 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 <laughs>